This is Childhood Heroes, and I'm Laura Wyatt-Smith. This podcast explores the big issues affecting modern childhood through conversations with inspiring subject experts. And we ask the question, is childhood today better or worse than a generation ago? My short time as a teacher in a secondary school in London coincided with not just the pandemic, but also the Black Lives Matter movement. This was um, a fascinating and challenging time to be in school, and I learned a lot from my pupils during this time. I remember especially one week when it kicked off in London and there were protests and we decided to set the pupils a task, a writing task, about their interpretations of and feelings about the Black Lives Matter movement and what was happening. There was one response in particular which stood out in my mind, and that was from an 11-year-old girl in my class who I really liked, bright and articulate and confident and a high achiever by any standards. I, I privately thought about her as a, a future politician. Um, But her response really troubled me. She talked about how exhausted she was from feeling that she had to always be better than everybody else to get the same level of credit. And that wasn't a feeling that I knew she had before that writing task. and And it really stuck with me. And it made me even more curious about the experience of black heritage pupils in education. I was also curious and troubled by the over-representation of some black boys in the lower sets um, that I was teaching and wanted to understand that better. And then, of course, we had the report, the Sewell report, um, which reported last year from the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. And really controversially, it, it concluded that there was no systemic problem with racism in the UK, which for anybody that knows anything about statistics, was a a deeply troubling and disturbing finding. And of course, there there was uproar in response to that. I am so grateful that we have Christine Kinnear, who is the founder of With Insight Education, on the show today. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you. Really pleased to be here with you this afternoon. So you might know if you've listened to any of our other podcasts, we, as this podcast is all about childhood and young people, we like to ask people what their childhood was like. And if you did have a childhood hero, then, then who was that? Right. Um, I pondered on this because I had listened to a few of the other podcasts. But whenever I try and wonder who my childhood hero was, it always comes back to Wonder Woman, which I know sounds really random, but I just... There was something about how strong she was um, and how subtly strong. So obviously she had the physical manifestation of her strength, but there was something about how true and honourable and internally strong she was that I found really appealing, even when I was five or six years old, watching her every Saturday afternoon. And I loved the fact that she would always win out in the face of adversity. Um, So there were many, many afternoons spent spinning around and pretending I had an invisible plane just like Wonder Woman when I was young. And what was your childhood like more broadly? 
I had a really happy childhood. I'd say happy and humble. So um, my parents were first generation immigrants from Jamaica um, and they came over and did the very typical thing. My mum worked as a nurse at NHS and my dad did various jobs, including the post office, which was quite a regular stop for a lot of um, West Indian men that had come over. But our house was one which had a lot of structure to it. There was definitely that whole hierarchy, um, but then also a lot of traditions as well. So it felt very safe and stable. So every Sunday there was always the chicken and rice and peas, for example. Um, and in terms of the beliefs, there was definitely this focus on education, education, education. So this real belief that look, they'd come over to give us a, a better opportunity and um, the way that which we were going to materialise that opportunity was through education. So there was a real focus on paying attention at school, doing what your teacher said. There was a lot of respect within the West Indian community for the teaching profession and what schools had to offer. And that definitely came through in terms of how we were brought up at home. But in terms of the area that I lived in, it was a really diverse area and it was it just felt free. So um, all the children went to the local school. We all used to play out and it, in quite a I suppose a juxtaposition to how childhood is now we would get up our mums would be like come back before it's dark and you just play out all day um but it was always felt safe because you were in this community where everybody knew each other there's definitely this sense of there's still eyes on you watching you and setting those boundaries and parameters notion of freedom and the right to roam is actually something we explore in a, another episode this series with Kath Prisk so you you might be really interested in that because that, that does seem to be a real change a trend over the last generation to having less freedom um, because it, it's something that many of our guests have commented on so really interesting that that was true it's, for you. It's such a shame I, I feel it's such a shame because I think a lot of the life lessons that you learn are when you're playing out you learn about risk taking you learn about negotiating friendships without a helicopter parent making things so for you and you build up such a resolve of social skills I felt from playing out um and and also you know when else in life are you going to get that freedom if you don't get it within your childhood and I do feel a certain sadness for our young people now that we as adults have deemed the world to be too dangerous for them um, and so we structured things for them because it's not really giving them the freedom to really explore themselves and and to create spaces where their imagination can run wild rather than having everything laid out for them. So, Christine, four years ago, you left a very successful career in marketing to create With Insight Education, which I know is a non-profit which provides mentorship for black heritage students. What, what was your inspiration behind With Insight Education? What is your inspiration behind focusing now on education for black heritage young people? There's almost two streams that inspired me to make that change in my career. One was my own lived experience of um, my educational choices. So although I did go to a family that, or sorry, come from a family that was very much education is important, what my parents didn't have was an understanding of the education structures um, within this country or a network of people who could have advised them. So consequently, when it came to my own choices about where to go to university, it just 
almost fell back on what I knew um, rather than having a network of support around me. And inevitably, I fell back on what I'd heard about um, and my own experience from travelling around to different universities. And although I was a highly able A-level student, definitely it was the case that when I was going around the country and visiting the Redbrook universities as they were at the time, I became acutely aware that in terms of representation, it actually felt that there was no other black people there. And I know that sounds extreme because clearly they were, but my point was I didn't see them and there weren't enough there and there was no effort to make sure that I felt that these were spaces where I could feel included uh, rather than an other. And given that I'd grown up in such a, what felt like such an ethnically diverse, safe environment, the thought of putting myself in that kind of space became overwhelming. It completely clouded my decision making. And ultimately, I did what lots of other students do, which is I chose what felt safe as opposed to really where my academic abilities could have been stretched and my potential really, really realised. And for the so long, I really thought, well, Christine, you've made that decision yourself. This isn't that common occurrence. But coinciding with me um, moving away from my old job and wanting to do more in education was my daughter now choosing her university choices. Um, And quite randomly, we were watching a TV programme about whether or not England could have a black prime minister and the statistic about the number of Old Etonians and Oxbridge um, former prime ministers came through. And she quite clearly, as clear as a bell, said to me, I could never go to Oxbridge, it's not for people like me. And I was so gutted, for want of a better term. It was like somebody had completely winded me because it it became so apparent then that even when there are the structures around these young people, they still, because of what they see around them, are still making decisions that mean they're cutting themselves out from great opportunities. And at that moment, it just felt really clear to me that something had to change, something really focused had to change. And I was looking within my own career to do something different. As you said, I'd been um, chair of a primary school, so I was quite embedded in the education system. But I really felt that there was space to focus specifically on supporting black heritage students to realise their potential, to not be scared of going into these spaces, to find their tribe within these spaces and their allies who can make them feel included, that can therefore open up the gates for them to get great education and move on to a a phenomenal professional career. That's... um... Yeah, it's pretty devastating, isn't it, to sort of hear your daughter say that a generation after yourself and think, what's changed? I was really surprised because I'd felt with my case that it was that my parents didn't really understand the education system, so they couldn't give me the advice as to where to go. But that's just not the case with my daughter. I'm clearly educated. Um, My husband has a degree, an MBA, um, and she'd grown up in a household where the mantra was, you can do anything you put your mind to, but still those environmental forces were having an impact on her. And it really drove home to me that we can tell our young people one thing, but they need to see that representation to really believe it, because otherwise we are asking them to be what they can't see. And that is a huge loop for a young person to take, too much of a leap, I think.
what I'm taking from that, Christine, is, as you say, the power of if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it's about representation and making things feel accessible, as well as to logically comprehend that it is a technical possibility. Yeah, absolutely. So the programmes that we run are a lot about the visual representation within that space. Um, so our mentors for our university programmes are Black Heritage students from these universities because we feel it's a really powerful way of showing these young people what their future could look like. And it's a very relatable way of evidencing to them that if they take certain steps, they too can walk that path. Um, but it's, I think a big part of what we do as well is make sure that they can make informed decisions. So there's a lot about the knowledge building within the young people, as well as building up their ability to put forward a successful application around what we do. So I think one without the other would fall short, but having the two together has proved to be a really powerful combination. I noticed that you use the term black heritage, and I'm presuming that's a conscious decision to avoid the, what is like relatively popular term BAME, but also a very controversial term in many ways. Could you just talk us through the importance of language and why you prefer to use that term black heritage? Yeah, so I'm, I'm well aware that BAME came around in the 70s and it was actually a term coined by people of colour because they wanted a collective term to talk about their collective issues that they were facing. But I think over time what's happened is that it's become a smokescreen um, and one behind which we ignore the nuances of different racial groups and their different experiences. And if we're not going to acknowledge their experiences, then we're not in a position to really think about what those different groups need as solutions to the problems that they face. So for that reason alone, I... I think BAME is too broad a catch-all term um, and it's doing a disservice now to the very people that a lot of those that use it want to actually benefit. Um, so for me, I use black heritage, which isn't that common a term of, I'm finding, but for me it was really important because obviously you've got people from African descent, people from Caribbean descent, but we have a sizable number of young people that we work with of mixed black heritage. Um, and I felt it was really important to give them a space where they, although the world might say to them, you're black and treat them as if they're black. I wanted to create a space where they felt I can be mixed here, but still acknowledge that I am going to face some of the prejudices that um, my black peers face. And I think it's it feels to me like a far more inclusive term than just saying black. If I may, touching upon that, it was, it was a subject that was raised in the, the report by Tony Sewell earlier this year, I think back in March or so. Mm. And this is the, the report from the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. And that was a very controversial report, wasn't it? It really divided opinion because um, for those listeners which aren't familiar, I believe it concluded that the UK doesn't have a systemic problem with race. But then there seemed to be some backtracking later on interviews with Tony Sewell, who, you know, sort of actually then said, no, we did find things. But but the report seemed to be quite a divisive report. And my understanding is he really focused down on... Um, some uh, on the educational status of, of children and young people. And he pointed to say certain groups of black heritage young people were doing better than white peers. And it seemed to create a division where, which pitched different types of people against each other. But 
But at the same time, I think there was probably some positive intent there to sort of say, actually, BAME is, an, you know, is a reductive term and, and that we should be looking at the detail, we should be looking at, at, at different individuals' experiences and not having one, one you know, overarching view because there's so much diversity you know, within ethnic groups as well as between them and it's certainly insufficient to lump everybody together. So what was your, what was your take on that report? What did, you, what did you think about this idea of institutional racism and the performance of different types of young people within the education system itself? I have to say, I, I was quite eager to read the report when it came out and then when it did, and I did digest what it had to say, I was, I was disgusted by, by it. And I know that is a really strong term to, to use, but I was furious. I was furious because it felt to me like a big fat lie that they were trying to put out. So my parents, one of the mantras in our house was, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And they didn't have the language of institutional racism, but they knew it, they experienced it. Um, and so do the young people that I work with every day. We see it in the stats from cradle right through to grave. At every point, the statistics are very clear that people of colour um, and in certain circumstances, black people in particular, are receiving worse treatment and are subject to less opportunities being presented to them. And if that isn't an institutional problem, I don't know what is. So for me, it felt like a really disingenuous report and a dangerous report because actually what it provided was a sanctioned fodder for anybody that wanted to say, look, the underachievement of black students, for example, is their fault. There is nothing here to see in terms of any large scale systematic changes that are needed. And clearly that is not the case. So I felt that it was a harmful report. Um, and although I was really heartened by a number of organisations and institutions that have said, we don't recognise the nature of that report. I still think for those that do want to say, look, this is a smokescreen. Um, this whole thought about institutional racism doesn't really exist. Therefore, there's nothing for us to fix. It, it gave them a legitimacy. And obviously, that's devastating. Yeah, I think your devastation was shared by everybody I know in the charity sector. There was pretty universal condemnation, I think, of the issuing of that report. And it felt like the data had been cherry-picked to support a conclusion well, which had already been formed before the Commission had even started gathering evidence. Even in terms of who was chosen to be on the Commission, mm. you, you felt there was a slant here. But then just logically, if you look at the statistics, when, when children go into school, they're on a par. By the time they leave primary school, there's not much difference. By the time black children leave secondary school, they're 11 months behind their peers. If you look at progression to higher education, as I do, yes, more black students are going to university, but black students are twice as likely to end up in a low tier university rather than a top tier, so say the top third universities, which are the real gate openers in terms of social mobility, salary prospects and professional careers even once they then graduate and at university there's a huge attainment gap so as a black student you are on average 20% less likely to get a first or a two one you then look at their employment opportunities and only just over half black students are able to graduate into full term um, full-time 
employment. So clearly there's just lots and lots of data points they could have looked like to build up a picture and they failed to do that. If we can try and take any positive from it, I feel that one positive thing was almost the the backlash that happened yeah. because it, it prompted people to speak out and say, whoa, whoa, no, that's not accurate based upon my experience. And and I certainly recall one, I think it was a BBC radio interview of, of a recruiter. Um, he himself was mixed heritage. Um, and he he was saying, you know, he, he was recruiting um, people for, you know, a career in tech or some such. And he said that, he didn't recognise it for what it was as it was happening at the time, but that people in the office would cheer when an, when an English sounding name would come through on an application because they knew they could place that student and they couldn't they couldn't so easily place other students um, or not sorry apologies not student uh, candidates I should say for for the workforce and they couldn't so easily place them and it's obviously direct you know discrimination of people who who hold misjudgments and and prejudices and he was you know exploring his own experience of that and sort of saying well when you're working on commission you can understand why people find an easier gig something to celebrate but it's absolutely abhorrent it's out and out uh, evidence of the discrimination that takes place in the workforce and you think about the trickle-down effect of of all of those little you know moments of discrimination through somebody's life and, and and it's horrifying really to think that that could be denied like it's it's a fact it's it's everyday reality for many many people exactly and i agree i think that there was a certain hubris to think that they could have released that report and the world would have said yeah okay but i i think that as a society now we are far more vocal about um, racial issues now than we were a year and a half ago. Obviously, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter really shifted the dial. And now people are calling out where they see things that aren't right. One thing, though, I'd, I'd really love to get your take on is this delicate matter of representation. Because representation, we all know, is so important because if you can't see it, you can't be it. Absolutely. But there is a danger, isn't there, that it can become tokenism. And, you know, people and we, we've seen this visible change in and in, in, um, more diverse faces being put forward on adverts and other things. And I worry sometimes that that's that's a mask um, that, you know, and it, my cynical brain thinks, is that just a more of a commercial, easy angle to sort of put forwards you know, di a diverse set of faces without actually addressing the real issues underneath. Do, does that concern you? Or are you happy that there's better representation visually in certain media? I think it is important to have better visual representation. Um, I think when I think back to my growing up, there weren't many black women on TV, for example. There were next to no black women in beauty magazines. Um, and so you grow up with this sense of not being seen um, as if you're invisible and you don't count. Or conversely, as a woman as well, you grow up with a sense that what you have to offer aesthetically isn't what the world wants and therefore it's a real knock to your confidence. You've got to find a grip somewhere to think, actually, yeah, that I, I do look okay. My body shape is okay. Um, so I think it is imp important that our black girls now are growing up and seeing black women on TV in roles that suggest that they are... Um, functioning humans in normal families, um, that they 
have all the quirks of a normal adult um, and that, that, that they count they can be seen as beautiful they can be seen as intelligent but I completely buy what you're saying about the superficiality of it so my background is actually in environmental marketing and there is a big um, correlation between what we're talking about now and the idea of greenwashing and I feel that it might be too early to say if things have fundamentally changed but the change I would like to see will be measured in hard facts. So, for example, are we going to see a significant difference in black people in leadership positions within organisations? You know, when those types of things happen, when we can see that representation at the decision making side of a business, then I will really have known that things are changing that we have people there with lived experience um, and alternative perspectives that can change the decision-making process and make sure that everybody is considered. Going back to the issue of children in education, um, obviously your your interest and your expertise is around young people moving on to higher education. And we've discussed that, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But also at the other end of the spectrum, we have issues facing young people from black Caribbean backgrounds who suffer a permanent exclusion rate of, I believe it's 25 in 10,000 versus seven in 10,000 for African people. So there's a great diversity within, you know, as using to use your term, black heritage young people. Um, to what extent do we understand the underlying factors um, that contribute to that sort of statistic? I think it's understood that poverty um, plays a big part in, in terms of children's I suppose, social capital and their ability to engage at schools. So if you've got a hungry child, they're not going to be in a position to learn, for example, or a parent that might struggle with their own relationship with school or their own education setting um, and background, therefore can't really support their child in a way that a middle-class, more affluent child would get that level of support from home. But overlaying that, there are the nuances, as you rightly pointed out. There is a difference between the the history of how a black African child, a West African child, would have come to this country and a black Caribbean child. And on that, I think that nuance isn't so well understood. And yet it does track through all the way through to higher education. So um, black Caribbean children do worse at school than black African children. But that is because your typical West African, black African child will come from a family that was more middle class, that um, came over later once there was a better system for them to integrate into. They'll come from a family that more likely to have an educational background that does involve a higher education than, for example, a black Caribbean child whose parents or grandparents would have come over and regardless of their education in the West Indies would have ended up doing quite a meaningful your job whose relationship with the education system was to trust a system that actually wasn't at that time at all looking out for the best interest of their children and therefore you get a different level of ingrained experiences that become generational deficits so we're not talking about the same starting point for those two different groups of children and yet the way in which we look at the stats generally suggests that we should be and that goes back to this whole point about nuance the more granular we can be about understanding children's starting point the better equipped we are therefore to support them from where they are as opposed to where we think they are 
And so given where we are, what do you think are the solutions? I think one is around expectations. So there's the very overt low expectation, the experiences that some of my students and um, other peers that I've spoken to, where they clearly had a teacher say to them, that type of university isn't for you, you won't fit in or you can't get there, which is even worse. But there's a much more subtle lower expectation, which is that child's performing at B, but you know, that's okay for them. But over here, we have another child who's B, but we're going to push them because we know that they're capable of more. So I think there is a there is definitely a low expectation across the education system for black heritage students. And yet the examples of where you've got schools that bug that trend, such as Brampton Manor, it's clear that once you change these children's expectations, once you show them a different pathway and you support them, then they're they're capable of amazing things. Um, So that would be one point. Um, a, A second point I do think is around representation within schools, because a school is the first work environment that a child will enter, if if that makes any sense. Um, They're going into a place with professionals and they're internalising this idea that professionals look predominantly white and they're predominantly of a certain class. And so where you've got situations we do in the UK where only 1% of head teachers are of black heritage you clearly as a child you start to understand kind of where you're you should be pitching yourself and then those inner voices those self-limiting doubts start to take hold i think also we need to look at the curriculum we need to be thinking about what is it we are teaching all children about black british history not just black history but black british history are we really equipping them to understand the interconnectivity between England or Britain and the colonies, are we equipping them to understand um, how that interconnection has contributed to the world in which we live today, both financially but also culturally in terms of the positives, but also the negatives. Are we saying, look, racism in the form that we know now is actually a social construct because it was a convenient way to treat black people as fodder that could therefore just be commercialised as opposed to humans that were worthy of dignity. What about mentoring? That's obviously your area of expertise. I think mentoring is a really powerful way of giving a young person the space to explore ideas with somebody who says to them, just the nature of mentoring says, I think you're worth the time and the investment and that is incredibly powerful in terms of building the confidence of a young person. Exposing the young person to somebody that they can grow to have as their own childhood hero is again a really really powerful way of getting them to think of an alternative future, maybe a a profession or a way of being that they don't have within their own social network. I had one particular student who came onto my programme, it was two years ago, he was one of my Manchester mentees, and he came onto the programme and he had such a spark about him, but he said, I'm not sure I even want to go to university, I think I want to do music production or be a footballer. Both are great careers if you can get into them, but I say to my students, 
listen, you're a good, great education is such a solid foundation to build from. And over the course of the 10 months that we mentored him, he really focused, he really grew to understand the importance of um, pursuing a more traditional path now. And he's now at King's doing in English. And I just think he wouldn't have got there if he didn't have somebody saying, you can do this and this is how you can do it. Comparing uh, being a black heritage student in the UK in school and aspiring to go to uni today versus a generation ago, what would you say is different now? I feel this generation have more agency, I think, than, than we did. I think that they just generally have a greater sense of if something's not right, they have now forums where they can vocalise that in a way that my generation didn't. Um, and they have the confidence to do that. And I think that's fantastic. Because although if we're talking about seismic change, that has to happen at a systematic level, there is still a role for people on the ground to be calling for what solutions they want to see and so we have mentees for example that have set up forums within their own school I've got one um, former mentee who's fantastic she went back to her school and actually did a piece of work with them to say look this would be my experience of coming through this school this is how all the racial incidences that happened and affected me I'd like to work with you to put together a program to make sure it doesn't happen to other people that's amazing. I've not heard of people doing that when I was at school or college. So in that sense, I think that there's definitely a, a greater proactivity with this age. And I think as well that generally this generation now are growing up where we are having conversations about the need for change. And that's more optimistic than when I was younger, for sure. Yeah. I wonder whether social media has had a big influence because I certainly know I, I follow things like, I mean, Nova Reid um, is a big name in, in sort of allyship and how to be a positive ally and the existence of Coco Boy and Coco Girl magazines. I don't know if you've yeah. come across those, but, you know, all about positive representation. I think aim more at the younger bracket. I'm not entirely yeah. sure, but, you know, I, I see a lot more of that material in my newsfeed now then even a year or two years ago I feel like it's a, a rapidly evolving space um would you agree I I do agree and I think it's wonderful I think that being able to see yourself represented in a positive light is is so empowering um because the common narrative of young um black youth particularly males unfortunately is violent, um, wayward, aggressive. And yet, clearly, I work with other students. And I would say the majority of students don't fit that. So it's really lovely to have this alternative narrative that's coming through that our young people are exposed to. Um, I think it will do wonders for their self-esteem. But also, not just theirs, I think it's important that generally people are presented with a different representation of what it means to be young and black. To anyone listening, is there, is there anything you would you would point to that we could do further reading on or actions we could take to support? Yeah, I think that when we've got our students at school, it's such a golden opportunity to ensure that they grow up with a true understanding of Black British history, but also Black people. Um, and if there was one thing I would say to parents is have that overt conversation with your young person about racism. And it might feel uncomfortable, 
But I think it is important to say to a child, this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. This is why it's wrong. And these are our values. And and knowing that that is the setting that you're coming from, I think it, it then gives that child the opportunity and the space to nurture some ideas of their own, um, to normalise calling out where they feel that something is being misrepresented. And as a, as a person a black woman myself, having those allies is, I can't tell you how how moving it is to have somebody who's not defending me because they necessarily have walked in my shoes, but defending me because they know that I'm of value as well. And having that is really powerful in terms of building a true sense of inclusion for these young students. I think it's it's probably time to to get your verdict <laughs> on the show. We ask people, you know, based upon a generation ago, looking at this issue in particular, um, do you feel that childhood is better or worse for for children, and young people today? Looking at this issue particularly, I'm going to say it's better for them today. Yeah, there's more opportunities, there's more organisations out there supporting them um, and there's more platforms for them to have a voice. So for those reasons, I'll say that it's better. That's that's very good to hear. A long way to go, I'm sure, but but good to hear we're on the right path. And uh, you mentioned platforms and, and organisations. Are there any individuals, organisations that you would call out? Yeah, so there's a gross underrepresentation of um, black students and black professionals in the STEM field. And I had the pleasure of having Keisha Payne come and speak to my students um, a few weeks ago doing a career talk. And I just thought she was the epitome of a modern day hero. She had come through the education system herself with bumps and all, but she saw a problem. She's created BB STEM, which is this fantastic organisation that provides opportunities for those looking to get into STEM careers and those within it to network and learn from each other um, and just progress. She has great energy and I think in terms of role modelling she's a fantastic role model to young people to, to really understand that they can be powerful and they can bring about change. Thank you so much for coming on the show Christine, it's been an education um, and yeah a real real pleasure and a privilege to have you. Oh, my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Laura Wyatt-Smith and you've been listening to Childhood Heroes. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm working as a consultant and a coach to the non-profit sector. If you'd like to find out more about what I do, please visit laurawyattsmith.com. Listener.